This is Enter VR, the podcast on all things virtual reality. I'm Chris Miranda, your host, and today I'm speaking with someone really cool, and I feel like this uh, conversation has been long overdue. Um, I'm speaking with Everyday, the Everyday VR. Dude, girl, ah, I already fucked up, damn it. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, dude, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate your time. Uh, no problem. I'm I'm happy to see you. Cool, awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm likewise. So, so all right, so... GDC just went by, but the uh-huh. emphasis of this conversation, I want to make sure it's on is on you. I want to know more about you, and I, and I and I and I like to because I I really appreciate what I for what you've done um, in terms of your contribution to the virtual reality community. Uh, your your UE4 tutorial, I, I think it was uh-huh. like you call it baby's first game or something. Um, yeah, it's probably one of my favorite. YouTube videos ever for some reason, <laughs> the, the way you were able to explain things, um, you're just a natural teacher, and I, and I really I really love that. I, I love the fact that you're uh, testing. You're so, for lack of a better word, industrious, or uh, in terms of putting out videos on YouTube, uh, all your let all your 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 reviews and let's plays. I really really enjoy them. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like, and not only that, you've been around for 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 a while. I feel like you you have uh, you, you you know more people than a lot than probably me. Um, and so let's 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 get the fluff out of the way. Um, how are you? How was your day? It was pretty good. Um, today was yeah, I just pretty much relaxed, and I've been working on uh, my light fields project, which we'll probably talk more about. And um, and that's that's about it for me. Cool. How was your day? My day was my, my day was pretty good. I, I gotta say I have I had a pretty productive day going on, so I can't complain. Um, and so I, I let's start from the beginning because, like mm-hmm. I said, I want to know more about you. You know what what how did you become involved in VR? So that's that's a funny. I don't think I've told that story. Um, so I I'm a student, uh, a grad student at UC Berkeley in the. Uh, computer science department and so one day i was just you know reading mailing lists on at the computer science department and there was this guy who was like hey does anybody have an oculus rift dk1 because i'd really like to check it out i'm like oculus rift what the fuck is that <laughs> and so i just you know i start googling things up and, and you know when i was when i was a kid i was you know always fascinated with vr and like i would read the magazines and i checked out like um um uh, dactyl nightmare at my local mall Gwinnett place mall and um and you know when i saw this i was like whoa and it's, it's like it's coming back and and they've got finally got something here that looks plausible and looks like it could really crack this and so that was when i started to get involved started to get into the reddit community started to and you know i i got my own dk1 at that time it was weird because i i got into it a lot later that was kind of the moment i got into it but it was a lot later than uh, some other people. It was like I think a year after people like Kyle and Bruce, uh, other evangelists. Um, I wasn't in the Kickstarter or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it was I believe December 2013, roughly, that I got um, that I got my DK1. I got my uh, gaming PC to drive it. It was funny because when I first got my DK1, I I had a laptop to drive it. I was like, my laptop has a great graphics card. This is going to be fine. It was terrible. It was oh. terrible. <laughs> So, um, what kind of laptop was it? Do you remember? Um, it was, uh, it was, a HP, uh, DX, DXT8, uh, DX, DX, I don't remember the actual name of it right now. Oh, DVT8. So it, it had, 
you know, it, it was like three years old and it had a very graphics card three years ago, but it's not suitable for any kind of virtual reality. Cool. Uh, I was running Minecraft at like 10 FPS with uh, version of Rift support. So, um, so how did you go from, so how did you go from like having a DK one to you're on YouTube? I mean, where, where, where did that, you know, where did that come from? So that was, that was almost, um, almost, a uh, almost right away, I think, because, um, I just, I was a big fan of, of, uh, gaming related YouTubers. I've watched a bunch of them in my time. Um, um, Husky Starcraft, A9, uh, Nintendo Capri Sun, Lucagen, people like that. And, um, and I just, um, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, with VR, with VR, uh, poised to break back into the market to achieve that mass adoption that it could never achieve in the 90s what is what is it going to take to really get people to be aware and to build that to build that momentum to start to create a massive market for vr and i think what what i thought was a big ingredient for it would just be uh would just be making it uh putting videos out on on youtube and getting people to if they can't experience it themselves, at least get to vicariously go through other people's experiences and have a lot of those experiences to look through and, and to get sincere reactions and to get, um, and, and to feel like they can be a part of it and to get excited about it. And so that's, it it was really my, my goal from the beginning was just to, to try and drive more interest and adoption in VR and to, um, and, and to try and just build up, build a really big library of content that people could explore and, and people with diverse interests could get excited about. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so I mean, you, you were talking, you talked about how you, you, you're, you want people to drive content and, 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 you know, push people to, to explore VR. And, and so, you know, what is it that you see in virtual reality that, that is so appealing to you? What is, what is it about it that, that, you know, motivated you to, to, you know, create a YouTube channel and, 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 put out so much content um i think i mean what what i love about vr and what motivates me about it is i mean obviously there's just the cool factor it's like i'm immersed in a virtual world and i can do anything i can do all sorts of things that i could never do before um but um a lot of it there, there's a lot of a lot of it's um i'm i'm really into the the vr social side of vr mm -hmm. i have a, a lot of um uh, friends who live very far away and I'd like to be able to have that kind of close interaction with them that I would be able to have in a real life setting. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited about the possibilities that that opens up. And, um, and I'm also, um, I'm, I'm, I'm also just excited about kind of the, the, the paradigms it opens up for just every genre for, um, for, productivity for uh exploring new worlds for uh getting for creators or or artists to to build new kinds of work and i i just i i i think it'll i think it'll unlock almost everything yeah um yeah i'm with you a hundred percent and so you know is there and so in that like are you are, are you looking i mean what is it at, at your Starting the YouTube channel, did you think that this was going to go and happen as fast as it did, or is it happening not fast enough? What What do you think about the pace of this thing? That's an interesting question. I mean, when I started it, that was pre-Facebook days. And mm -hmm. so the way I saw it at the time was that 
Oculus was going to, you know, raise because I, I knew hardware was expensive. I knew hard. I, I figured Oculus is going to raise some amount of money, produce some relatively small number of headsets that will be purchased by a niche extreme gamer community. And then slowly they'll build, you know, three, four more iterations. They'll start to add exciting features, attract a mass audience. But now it looks like, you know, things are just like shooting up this hype curve and we're getting every major company just jumping into the business all at once and we're and we're probably going to see you know this christmas some some giant massive marketing efforts that are just going to be targeting absolutely everyone in a mass audience and there's there's a very big chance that this is not going to be nearly as gradual as i first expected yeah 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 and is there you know what are the ups and downs to this explosion versus the gradual progression what did you think i mean do you think that there's you know, are, are there downsides to this explosion, or, or, or what do you think? That's a tough question. Um, I mean, the benefits of the explosion is that you get to a, a lot of that early innovation phase where you're trying a bunch of stuff um, can be, you know, effectively paralyzed because there's you know several different companies and they're all trying everything they can try and and pouring tons of money and effort into it. And so you can really, it, I think it'll help to bootstrap the space a lot because you're doing so much innovation all at once, all at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and, you know, before, even if the VR, the launch of VR turns out to be disappointing, by the time any of that happens, uh, there'll be so much innovation that will have already occurred by that point. So I think it has that benefit. Um, and uh, the, the downside is that you are risking, you know, you're risking a hype. Uh, a hype bubble that we could see like VR launch and, you know, it sells like 10 million copies and all the investors are like 10 million. That's not what we were hoping for. And then they're like, VR sucks. And um, I, I think that we, I, I think that uh, we should we should not expect everybody in the world to get into VR overnight. We should um, we we should expect that it's going to find a lot of important applications and it's going to become more widely used. But um, the day when everyone has an HMD in their house is is probably still, I think, maybe a decade away. Yeah, it, you know, you would you just um, described it so succinctly was in my mind a. Um, a, a great way to describe the inner the inner the dot com bubble that happened in the in the two thousands, right? Like, you know, everybody. I feel like oh, so um, I was probably too young to really understand that 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 point in history. But what I from what I've learned is everybody over invested in the internet, um, and just like what you said, investors were like, huh, you know, so and so numbers. This is not what I expected, and so like. With with how how do you how do we as a community or as people who you know either want to run businesses or and create things like how do we excite people about VR without hyping it up so much that you know when we reach the trove of disillusionment like you know the Gardner report would say then um then 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 we will will survive it will be okay I mean how do we walk that fine line. That's that's really tricky. Um, I think uh, part of it is just having the right approach to uh, to marketing and communicating with the public. Like um, there there's a certain kind of company that just like talks about all the great things their product can do and all the great things their product might 
do maybe if they bother to develop those aspects mm -hmm. and they never really talk about any of its limitations or compare it to anything else or and i i think it's important for them it's important for companies to be self-critical and to say this product is really great for these applications for these scenarios and it has these disadvantages but we still think it's a great entry in the marketplace that's going to solve a lot of problems mm -hmm. rather than trying to put it forward as the the golden solution to everything um and the other thing is just that and the other thing is this is kind of outside of the company's control is there's there's going to be a certain amount of hype that just is kind of word of mouth hype it's like people telling all their friends oh there's this big launch coming and it's going to be vr and you're going to be walking around on the moon and it's going to be awesome and and and, you know, and all those people are going to get their headsets and they're, they're going to be like, well, this isn't right, like real life. And then there's, there's going to be some letdown then. And that's kind of beyond their control. Um, and all they can really do, I think, to control that is to just push push out headsets that people can try in a reasonable time frame so that they're not like so that so that they, they get that chance to be disappointed as soon as possible. Yeah. What do you? What's your take on the you know augmented reality versus virtual reality sort of industries? Do you think? Uh, I mean, and 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 so, sorry for adding my two cents before you answer the question, but in my mind, I Go feel ahead. like they're going to converge eventually. VR and AR will converge into the same device that you will be able to get both experiences out of it. But and but for the meantime, I think that they're they will be competing platforms, competing industries. Um, to find market share on people's faces, uh, but uh, I want to know what your take is. Like, what do you think? You know, where is VR and AR? Are they competing, or are they just apples and oranges? It, it, you know, it's not. It's not about that. What do you think? It's. It's really. This is kind of a market analysis question, and I don't. I, I honestly don't think I have enough insight into the average AR user mm -hmm. to say a lot about their motivations. Um, because you know, the average AR user is like the the people in the Google uh, Glass video, the people who want to you know go out on on the town at night and go to a and find the directions to a concert and find the book in the bookstore and all, all that kind of thing. And you know, I I I guess I I spend more time at home, so VR is more the obvious thing that I I understand. But um, I I guess I feel like. I, I feel like they're not necessarily competing. They're like, there are things that people use in different spaces and you, you can't pretty much, you can't use VR outside. Um, it, it, if you try, you're going to, you're going to be in some amount of trouble because you're completely oblivious to your surroundings and you're not safe and you can't really use, and it doesn't really make sense to use AR in your house either because, um, for the most part, you know where things in your house are and what's going on in your house. So I, I think there's going to be kind of domains, the places that define where each type of device is used. And in terms of how people spend their limited resources to get into one or the other, I think that's just going to depend on um, on whether they value uh, kind of home entertainment, home productivity, or they're, um, or they're uh, going around on uh, outside and doing things uh, productively more. Yeah, I, I I would say generally speaking, I I, I'm, I would I would agree with you with, on all your points. I would say there are exceptions for using VR in public, like uh, waiting at the airport or waiting or being on an airplane long. Yeah, long yeah. Um, Places where essentially you're 
safety is ensured by somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but it, it's definitely an interesting agent to see the interaction between these two industries. And moving, moving along, I, I want to know, what do you think is the, the most profound effect that virtual reality will have on humans? Oh, that's, that's a very difficult question, but um, I think the most profound effect is going to be on how people, how people create things. I think that in the future, uh, creation, um, creation of not just art, but all kinds of um, information artifacts, all kinds of documents, all kinds of, um, all kinds of uh, communication and, and, and self-expression. I think a lot of that's going to occur in the VR space. And I think people's, people's um, experiences will be uh, a lot richer for that because it'll, it'll, make intuitive creation of, of a much wider range of artifacts much more accessible mm -hmm. than it was previously on like even now if you want to create things on a monitor you can you can there's tons of great software you can create lots of great things but the learning curves are brutal and your, your grandma or i shouldn't say grandma but an inexperienced computer user is is unlikely to be able to do that and like um, my grandma and, no worries my grandma's pretty inexperienced no she won't take yes. offense. <laughs> and um so yeah I, I think um i i think it's it's going to be and and once you can do that kind of creation and everybody can participate in it mm -hmm. um it just opens the world it, it opens up the world for all kinds of mixing remixing and combining and building great things together yeah i yeah i'm with you 100 percent. i mean and, and it, 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 i not only doing that but also doing it more efficiently i feel like um you know, just with with interfaces that are more intuitive, um, in in ways that I think speed up the process of creation. I, I would hope, um, because other other you know, if otherwise, then why are we? Why is VR so? You know, why do we need VR? Like what? You know, and, and fundamentally, like I'd like to ask you that question. Like, why do we need virtual reality? And and yeah, you're raising. I, I think you're kind of getting at it that. Uh, it's it's that trying to map trying to map how you interact with a three dimensional world into um, into that two D space. Essentially, you're just kind of throwing away a lot of what the the human brain and and your your everyday life has taught you how to do. Like mm -hmm. you know how to go to the kitchen and fill a glass with water and all the all the skills that you use when doing that. None of those you use when you're sitting at your computer and um, and, and VR essentially enables you to efficiently leverage all of your real-world skills, all of your real-world perception and and motion and um, and interactions, and and just leverage those to perform types of tasks that were never possible to do with them before. In um, because in the real world you couldn't uh, you couldn't have the software to do it, and in and on your screen you didn't have the the motor interaction to do it, and so. Um, and, and obviously to do this, you need some kind of effective input system, uh, which is part of why I'm so excited about Lighthouse. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think that why VR is necessary is because it, it, it really does let us tap into a lot of what humans are good at to do things that humans want to do. Hmm. Yeah, yes, definitely for sure. And, and so, you know, I, I like to ask, you know, just going deeper into, into what motivates you and where you're coming from. I mean... Ten years from now, uh, when hopefully this is, you know, mainstream and everywhere and ubiquitous, and you know, my grandma's using it, um, where would you like to see yourself? You know, and and I'd like to, 
and and I'd like to ask you to dream. I'd like to I like to I like to hear your wildest dream. Where would you like to be when when this is everywhere? Dream dreaming big. Um that's a good question. Um I, I don't think about the future enough as I should, but um I, I'd like to say that I, I really want to I wanna have a personal hand in um just a, a lot of the developing of kind of the core technology that's going to enable a lot of the important uh, VR applications. Um, and I want to um, I, I want to do some of the research that establishes and creates the things people use to build things. I want to, um, and in addition to that, I just want to continue to be an evangelist who's getting more people to put HMDs on their heads and, and getting people to see how valuable and how exciting all the content is. Yeah, I, I yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, what what excites you more about VR, the hardware or the the software side of it? Hmm. That's I I'm I'm always excited about the hardware. Um I think just as a software person, I'm a lot more um I I have a lot better background for understanding the software side of things. Um and and there is a lot of interplay of course because, you know, a, a lot of the innovations of the Rift revolved around how they can use software to um, address hardware limitations. Um, and and I, I think software excites me the most because it's it's an area where I can learn some about how the software works and then I can think to myself, well, I understand this well enough that I could dive in and do something cool and new with the software with my software skills. Whereas on the hardware side, it's more just like, well, some people build some nice software, how it works, and there's nothing much I can do about that. Um, I guess it's just going to continue to work well, and um, so and maybe maybe I'll get more into a little bit of hardware tinkering in the future. But I, I feel like the software side is kind of where I can leverage my own skills the most. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I, what do you think? And so, in, in understanding the software, I mean, I'm not at all well versed in a lot of the technical aspects of the, this industry and the in this just this medium. And I, I this is why I actually. I was taking notes during the John Carmack uh, talk yesterday or two days ago, and uh, with the direct intention to come back to you and ask you on the podcast <laughs> a couple things that I were spinning inside my head that I just couldn't. Sure. Yeah. I, couldn't. Uh, I have not actually seen the whole John Carmack talk yet, but I'll try my best to okay. Uh, okay. answer your question. So here we go. All right, because I feel like you are a wizard and a fountain spring of knowledge. Um, so, but, but don't, no, no pressure. So he was talking about, um, uh, chromatic <laughs> aberration. And I know this is a word that a lot of, I've been seeing a lot yeah. on the Reddits. I, and, and I have to apologize because I am a noob, uh, on all of this. And I'd like to know mm -hmm. what it is. What, and can you please explain it to me? Like I'm a five-year-old. That is not a problem. So have you ever seen a prism? Yes. Like one of those things, you shine light at it, and it makes a rainbow. Yes. Yeah. So, um, in in short, the lenses in HMDs, um, in addition to magnifying as prisms, they, um, especially at, at different parts of them, bend different frequencies of light by different amounts. And so, the effect of that is that if just if you just take um, if you just take an regular image and you put it on the screen of the rift and you you do all the uh, stuff to correct for the lens distortion but you make aberration mm -hmm. then uh, towards the edges of your vision you're going to see um for example white objects splitting into 
uh, red, green, and blue uh, like copies of that object. So it'll it'll appear to be kind of splitting into colored piece, uh, colored versions of itself, mm-hmm. and that's due to the chromatic aberration. Because on the screen it looks fine, but through the lens it doesn't. Um, and what uh, what part of what the the Rift software does um, is that it does chromatic aberration correction, where actually for each of the red, green, and blue channels, it distorts each one by a slightly different amount. And then when you look at it through the lens, it brings all those three parts together into a single image that you see on the other side of the lens. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. And so, how do how do Fresnel Fresnel lenses relate to that to the topic of chromatic aberration? Because that's another thing that I've been reading a lot about, and and, and I want to know if they relate or, or you know what. So there there's some relation. Um, what the relation largely revolves around. I'm I'm a little weak on this, but my understanding is that Fresnel lenses just have more, um, more complex. Um, uh, they're more complex lenses, and they uh, they have more complex patterns of aberration. And so, in order for them to uh, effectively compensate for that or correct for that aberration, they have to they have to use new software algorithms that are uh, are that are suited to it. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's it, but I don't know for sure. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, you okay? Uh, moving on to the next one, asynchronous time warp. What what is the in- asynchronous time warp? Okay, I can explain asynchronous time warp. Um, do you know what regular time warp is? I saw your video on it, and I already okay. forgot um, what it is, so I'm sorry. That's fine. Um, I'll 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 go over it again because my video didn't explain everything you need for this. Um, the gist of so so um, the gist of asynchronous time warp is that um, so what they're trying the problem they're trying to solve is that sometimes when you're playing a VR game, uh, for whatever reason, for example, maybe it needs to load an asset on demand, or maybe something, a service starts up in the background on your computer, but sometimes you'll just, like, lose a bunch of frames. Like, you might lose, like, three frames in a row, or you might, your computer might stutter for a few seconds, and your frame rate drops by, like, half. Mm -hmm. And this kind of thing happens all the time on PCs, because there's so much stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And this causes a big problem because in VR, as soon as the head tracking stops effectively following your exact position or orientation of your head every single frame, uh, you will immediately notice it. You get stutter and it feels very uncomfortable. You can have sickness from it. And so the, the insight behind asynchronous time warp is that each frame, so by default, what it does is if it renders a frame and then it's rendering the next frame, but it doesn't have that next frame ready in time, mm-hmm. it'll just show the previous frame exactly like it was before. And that causes that study you see when the image seems to kind of stick as you're moving your head around. Mm-hmm. Um, and with asynchronous time warp, instead of doing that, each each frame, if they don't have the next frame ready in time, they will take the last rendered frame, they will compare the the position of your head for which that frame was rendered with the current position of your head. And they will uh, perform a very cheap, very fast transformation on that rendered image to make it look um, as as it should looking from your current perspective. Whoa. And by doing that, and then they just throw that up on the screen, and so you see the right thing on the screen for that frame instead of seeing the old frame unmodified. Whoa. Knowing all, before I move on to the next one, like knowing all of this, do you see ones and zeros when you move around the world, like like real world? <laughs> <laughs> you sound. Like you, I I. 
yeah, I don't look at uh, the world like a matrix, but, um, <laughs> but, but um, I, I, I have had, certainly had like, this is an experience I think a lot of softer people have had where sometimes, or a lot of gamers in general, you walk outside and you're like, that grass, oh my God, look at that texture. That's amazing. <laughs> and the frame rate and, and the dynamic range on the scene with the sunlight and the shadow and it's just all so well done. And look at those tiny particles. And yeah, it's, it's a little bit silly. Yeah. I, it's a, we live in a really well-made, well-done simulation. Um, and uh, moving on to the next one, I, you know, what, what is light field? That, that's another word I, that he was talking about or, or someone was talking mm -hmm. about. What, what? So Carmack did briefly mention in the context of Otoy. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Otoy, and yes. so the, the way I always explain light fields, I think this is the most reasonably accurate way to explain it to a VR person, is um, are you familiar with uh, 360 photos? Yes, I am. Yeah. So uh, just for, for the listeners, a 360 photo, you are uh, in an environment usually captured from the real world of cameras. You can look in any direction, look up, look down, look left, look right, and um, and you'll see the right view. Um and it surrounds you on all sides. And the problem with 360 photos right now um, is that uh, most of them tend to be monoscopic or they um, you see the same image with both eyes. And so you don't have any stereoscopic depth in the image. And the ones that do have stereoscopic depth tend to exhibit a variety of annoying artifacts. For example, if you tilt your head to the left or right, you won't see the right thing. If you move your position uh, using positional tracking, you won't see the right thing. The world will seem to move with you. If you look up or down at the poles, those usually aren't rendered correctly. There's usually stitching errors. And um, light fields is in short. Um, oh, the other thing it doesn't do right is it has a fixed, um, the, the stereoscopic ones have a fixed inner pupillary distance. So if your eyes are not the right distance apart, then the scale of the world will appear to be off. So, um, and light fields can effectively just pretty much take away all of these problems all at once. And the way they can do that is with light fields, um, you render the scene from, um, not just kind of the four views around you or the six views around you, you render the scene uh, from a bunch of different views. Uh, usually, um, in our case, we distribute them over the surface of, um, of an icosphere or a type of sphere. So they're all spread out over this sphere, and there's usually a few dozen of them at least. Hmm. And then once you have those views, um, what we can do is in real time for each pixel, we can look at that, we can take one of those views and take one pixel from that view. And then for each pixel, we decide which view to take it from and what part of the view to take it from. And by doing that, we can actually synthesize any position and any ang viewing angle inside that sphere. So your head can be inside the sphere and you can move your head around inside the sphere. You can turn your head at any angle inside the sphere and it'll always synthesize the correct view. This is holy crap! This is this is this sounds like magic and wizardry to me. Let me ask you about are these these are these software techniques um, or, or, or I mean how would, are they libraries? Are they techniques? Uh, you know, chromatic aberration, asynchronous time warp, and light field. Are they? Uh, how would you categorize them as? Are they? What are so, they? So, uh, so chromatic aberration correction and um, is is built into. The, the part of the Oculus SDK software. So that's a software technique um, along with uh, lens distortion correction. And um, light fields I would more characterize as they're, they're sort of a, so light fields in general are kind of a, a kind of 
like like 360 photos they're a kind of media mm-hmm. they're a kind of media object or a kind of asset or a kind of resource that you can incorporate into applications in order to present uh in order to uh to to present a view or present um um objects or data mm-hmm. um and uh, light field rendering is is a technique that you use to to show those light fields to the viewer. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the second one you said? Uh, asynchronous time warp. Asynchronous time warp, and that's that's yeah, that's another software uh, technique that's built into the the Oculus SDK, and it's um, yeah, and these are these are all pure pure software techniques, and there's hardware involved. Like asynchronous time warp re- relies on um, um, relies on having certain information available about timing from the headset and certain characteristics of it. Um, chromatic aberration correction depends on knowing exactly what kind of chromatic aberration the lenses have so it can correct it. And light fields uh, require uh, mechanisms for capturing real-world light fields. Um, so they all have relation to hardware, but they're all software techniques. Very cool. Uh, and, uh, just to, you know, uh, just to, I just want to say I, there's, there's, 80% of what what you you said I understood so I'm going to have to listen to this conversation again thankfully while I write the show notes you know and my, the question I was leading up to um so I apologize if if I'm you know if I'm a bit of an ape but the question I was leading up to is like can these software techniques um are, can they be patented patent it patented patented it yeah and 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 I wonder because I, and correct me if I'm wrong but I feel like this the virtual reality software patent wars are inevitable. I don't know when they'll happen. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they'll look like. But I wonder if techniques such as these, like a chromatic aberration and asynchronous time warp, and, and all the others that make the magic of virtual reality happen, like you know, are are, do you, are they on the table when you know those battles happen? So um, first of all, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not super into IP, and you you will want to talk to a legal person about it, but um, I, I believe that most of these techniques are not patentable either because um, there's existing prior art or because uh, prior art in, in, the ter- in the form of either um, research that's already been published about them mm. or just the fact that these, um, these Oculus SDKs have already been put out for download. Um, I don't know for sure if Oculus internally has like, like pending patents regarding some of these techniques, which might have might change things um but i i do know that in a lot of cases um like like lighthouse for example um i think i don't know if it's patented but i know that they are offering like free licenses of that technology um to different people and or to different companies and so i I think um because a lot of the the researchers who are are really pouring resources into VR right now are more interested in VR taking off. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of kind of just saying, I made a thing, everybody can have it now. And then they lose their chance to patent it uh, once they've made it available. Um, On the other hand, I think in the future, there's going to be a lot more um, kind of like, like a lot of the kind of stuff Apple patents is more along the lines of, well, we figured out how to do this little interface type thing um, in this new environment, and so we're going to patent that, and then people are going to have to pay us for it. And I think that's going to happen for VR as well. I think there's going to be a lot of figuring out how to do a specific type of UI interaction in VR in a way that's comfortable and makes sense and is easy and intuitive. And I think um, there's there's probably going to be a lot of patents around that type of interaction. 
And some people have suggested that we really should be building a VR patent pool for the purpose of uh, defensive patents so that whenever people try to sue people with VR patents and, and patent trolls and such, we can just sue them back and stop them. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know if anything like that's going to materialize in practice. I hope something happens because I feel like the patent system as is currently is not, um, I don't, I don't think it allows for the full, you know, if, if, if innovation had wings, you know, you, it can't really spread mm -hmm. its wings fully because of the constraints of the current yeah. system. And I mean, pen system, like I'm, I'm not going to rant about this all day, but <laughs> briefly, the terms are way too long for the speed at which the tech industry is iterating. Um, I, I believe, what is it, 14 or it's, it's pretty long years. Hmm. And, um, and in addition to that, it's just, um, um, what was I about to say? Um, yeah, never mind. Never mind. Okay. No worries. Yeah, we can, we, but we could talk about patents. We can rant and vent. We can vent to each other. We'll vent to each other after the podcast um, uh -huh. uh, on the patent system. And, and, and yeah, and, um, my fear, I mean, my fear of it all is um, you, you saw that Apple pat made VR patents and, you know, I, they would, my fear, the worst case scenario is that they would come in with their patents and they would offer startups you know, a, a double, a double offer. All right, either you, you, you let us buy you for this X amount of money, or we're gonna sue you for this X amount of money because we already have certain patents and we have more lawyers and money than you. Is that a possibility, or am I being too pessimistic? Or, um, and I mean, uh, again, I'm not trying to say Apple will do this, but I, but I fear that that might be a case if a big company is making a lot of patents and um, has a lot yeah. of money. I mean, inevitably, there are going to be patent trolls in the VR space. There's going to be companies who use patents as a weapon. And that's just the way it's always been with patents. And um, and, and I think that all, all that we can really do is... I, I think all we can really do... Right now, I think it's too early to worry about mm -hmm. patents too much. And that, for the most part, companies should be trying to innovate. Mm -hmm. And trying to get their stuff out there and to make a difference. And they're... they're Nobody, nobody's going to sue you if you don't matter. So, um, and if you don't have any, if you don't have any income uh, to pay them with, so yeah. it's, it's. I, th I think it's important to focus on on innovating and doing great stuff. And then when the patent wars start to come along, then people can start to develop defensive measures that'll that'll be effective. And they can and and in order to in order to deal with that. I, I think a lot of it's going to come down to prior art and just having to, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to patent things that other people have obviously already done years ago. And there's going to have to be court battles where they get those thrown out. And, um, and some of those might be preemptive um, and that that'll take some time, but I think eventually we'll get to a place where kind of the core technology behind VR behind, behind the essential parts of VR is going to be uh, public domain. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you 100% in, 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 in making sure that the defensive measures are, are, are put in place when, when this starts coming, you know, becoming a, a real, real issue. Um, but moving on and, and staying true to the uh, idea of innovation, you know, I think John Carmack said it, or maybe I read it in a chat, that someone was saying ray tracing is the future. And I'd like to know what is ray tracing and why is it the future? 
Um, so that's an opinion. Um, okay, thank you. <laughs> so <laughs> ray tracing, um, so what is ray tracing? First of all, ray tracing is a very different method of rendering. Um, rendering in games today is largely based around, um, it's based around polygons. You have a polygon in space. It has vertices that designate its corners and you apply a texture to it. You apply materials to it that describe how bumpy it is or how it reflects the light. Um, and then you just have a lot of those. And the, the difference with ray tracing is um, that instead of rendering, so with normal traditional computer graphics, you take each polygon, you draw it on the screen in the right place with the right material. Um, with ray tracing, for each pixel on the screen, you shoot out a ray in the direction of that pixel, like a ray of light. Um, you're, it, you're kind of working backwards because rays of light come into your eye. So you're pretending that uh, you're shooting, you're kind of following the ray of light backwards out of your eye and seeing what it hits. And um, then you can you can simulate a lot of things using uh, physical simulation that you couldn't do in a traditional rendering system by following how the light bounces around the environment and how it passes through objects with refraction and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, and the benefits of um, of ray tracing as a rendering method is that all. It, it is currently much more expensive than traditional rendering for most types of scenes because you're doing it a pixel at a time and each pixel involves a lot of work mm -hmm. to figure out exactly what to render there. Um, whereas with traditional, you're, you're kind of doing large regions of the screen all at once with those big polygons. Mm -hmm. um, but the benefit is that you can, um, you can effectively rendering scales not with the complexity of the scene, not with how many polygons or there are how complex the materials are, but mostly with the number of pixels on the screen, um, which lets you have um, much richer geometry that can describe objects with a lot more detail. And um, and ray tracing is starting to uh, using advances in hardware and massive parallelism. Ray tracing is starting to get fast enough now that they can start to do it in real time. And so real time ray tracing. Um, is something a lot of people are excited about now. And there's a lot of research going into at the present time. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of skepticism. There are a lot of people who believe that even as real-time ray tracing is getting faster, that um, that traditional rendering using polygons is getting faster kind of at the same rate and is going to continue to uh, be a better use of resources um, indefinitely. And, and, um, and, other, so it's kind of contentious whether or not real-time ray tracing is going to become a big part of how they do graphics in the future. Mm -hmm. But um, in the context of VR in particular, it's, it has um, some, some cool additional benefits. Uh, for example, uh, with ray tracing, um, you can – so with traditional rendering, you um, – you have to do this extra stage where you correct for the distortion of the lens and you correct for the chromatic aberration. And that actually adds a lot of work uh, for the renderer to do. Mm -hmm. um, not so much the correction, but having to render a bunch of extra pixels so that you, um, so that you could do the correction afterwards. Uh, whereas with, um, whereas with ray tracing, you can literally just uh, include the lens distortion correction and the chromatic aberration correction as part of the ray uh, the ray tracing process, so that you're doing one ray for each pixel on the final HMD display, which can be um, potentially a lot more efficient if they can make real time ray tracing efficient. Is there a, is there are there theoretical limits to how powerful or um, or are there ceilings to to ray tracing and or in terms of like you know is there you know, is there is there, is there a place where, and I don't know if this is the right question, but is there is there a place where like 
rate tracing reaches its limit um, in, in usability? I mean, what do you what do you think? I, I think what you're asking is kind of are there are there places where ray tracing is infeasible or doesn't make sense? Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's kind of what's the case right now is right now ray tracing is just too slow to use for real time graphics. It can't um, like even even the fastest systems are producing uh, very low frame rates um, with with, some, with a few. I mean, there, there are some research systems that are starting to push it up, but it's still relatively slow and matching the frame rates necessary for VR is going to be very, very challenging. Um, but um, I mean, in, in terms of what kind of scenes tend to make ray tracing slow, um, it tends to be, I, I would say it tends to be scenes where there, um, where there are a lot of, a lot of light sources, where there's a lot of, um, so, so you have to, um, so you, so you have to, so any, any scene where there's really complex uh, materials where light has to bounce around lots of times to get an accurate picture of the scene, mm -hmm. um, scenes where, uh, where, where you, where you might have to very precisely track rays in order to make sure they pass through objects correctly. Um, um, for example, like 3D fractals or something, those might be challenging to ray trace. Um, but I, I say this with the caveat that almost all of these scenes I can describe that kind of hit fundamental limits of ray tracing also are very problematic to render with traditional graphics. So I'm, I, I, I'm not sure that that's, um, necessarily account against ray tracing. Cool. Okay, so we're going to move from software and hardware to wetware. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd like to ask you a question on, you know, someone uh, someone uh, posted something, a, a really good question on the um, on, on Twitter while John Carmack was doing this talk. And um, he th this person wanted to know uh, what John Carmack's thoughts were on the variations in visual processing um, and, you know, from human brain to human brain. Uh, and how that affects people's individual experiences with virtual reality. Um, and, and so, I, in, in my mind, I feel like th this there's something to that. I, you know, it, it kind of remind. And, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, humans perceive reality uh, different from person to person. And one example of that was this um stupid dress that was the dress yes <laughs> that, was, that was going all over the internet like i i i honestly i avoided the hell of it the hell out of it until my um my little brother in nicaragua like it, it got to him and it, my whole family down in nicaragua were like they were like you know there was turmoil uh over it and and so and so i i couldn't avoid it but but so it, what color is it for you it's black well, white and white and gold what about yeah, it was white and gold for me too. Okay. We're obviously right. I don't see what the big deal is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> shut. Uh, all right, we can move on. But but and so in, in that same vein, like, is there is there variability in how we and how fast we process uh, visuals? Um, and and again, how do we uh, or how and how does the virtual reality industry account for that when when creating HMDs? So that's that's a good question. Um, there there are certain ways in which it's already relevant. For example, different people have individual uh, flicker thresholds. So there are people who look at like like a a, a monitor that's flickering at uh, 
that's running at 60 hertz and they'll like see it physically flickering on and off and really fast and it'll really annoy their eyes mm. whereas other people look at it and it looks totally normal and so those people who are really annoyed by it if they use a device like gear vr that's turning off on and off the screen at that rate then they'll feel very uncomfortable with it whereas someone else might not um and that becomes less and less of an issue as you push the uh, push the refresh rate higher, but as you do that, you have to also uh, boost your frame rate somehow. So uh, I I don't know if they're just going to continue to if I, they might just use techniques like asynchronous time warp to just boost that frame rate and then not worry about it. But there's also a possibility they might end up kind of trying to customize refresh rate based on individual flicker thresholds or something like that. Mm. Um, and um, in in general, there's it's 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 complicated because. I'll, a lot of individual perception is still stuff that's that's way way beyond what we understand with with neurobiology, and I, I don't know for sure which aspects of it are going to be relevant and which ones are going to have enough individual difference that they really need to worry about it. Um, but I, I think we're definitely over like as HMDs become more and more widespread, we're going to start getting we're start going to start getting a list of people who just they put it on their head and it doesn't work and nobody knows why and that's going to be that's going to be really important as hmds become integral parts of of society of education of your job and so we're we're going to have to start worrying about like what's different about these people and how do we how do we modify our systems to accommodate them yeah yeah that's uh yeah, yeah that's a great answer and and there's there's so much um uh, there there's so much to be learned on these fronts i mean it's so crazy to think that vr intersects in in so many aspects of, of um biology uh, business uh technology itself i mean there's yeah it's crazy and you know going back to wetware um i'm trying to ask you about wetware the brain perception um i lost it just now give me one second it's in Take my head let me look for it inside my old brain um Oh, neurogenesis. So, uh, so something that uh, that kind of stuck to me about reading uh, Singularity is near, well, you know, written by Ray Kurzweil, um, was this concept of neurogenesis um, that is not, you know, he it's, it's not something that he created. Definitely, it's definitely, you know, something that happens naturally. Uh, it's the creation of neurons as we experience new things. Um, the, the brain, you know, the, creates some new synapses and neurons. Uh, again, again, I'm speaking way out of my element. Um, I am a political scientist, not a scientist, obviously. And so, but but here's the question though: If assuming the assuming that experiences create neurogenesis, um, do you think that having this all of a sudden the this device? that gives you this abundance of experiences, um, the likes of which we've never had access to before, do you think that um, that will have a positive impact on, on neurogenesis? In other words, do you think that we will become a smarter type, smarter humans over time? Or do you think that um, we might have you know, adverse effects from, from the availability of so much and, and we might just you know, um, become... Like uh, like drugs, we might become desensitized, and we might need more, and you know, we our brains might decay. I don't know. So, what what do you think? Another another one of, another one of those weird questions. <laughs> so, 
Um, so first of all, I'll start by saying kind of what VR has in, in the lull between 90s VR and modern consumer VR, can, professional uh, VR still existed and it was used by the military and by organizations. And one of the main applications was training. And um, and I think VR, consumer VR is also going to be very important for training and education. And it's, it's going to, it's, it, and the experiences people have, even if they're intended for entertainment are, I think, going to, to train people to, to react certain ways in certain situations to, to, to be able to operate certain kinds of devices and, uh, or, or interact with certain kinds of, um, uh, situations. And so, um, and, and so it's, it's certainly going to like, like there's, um, there's, there's, there's the, the joke about like someone's on a crashing plane and a passenger is like, it's okay. I got this. And they're like, have you ever flown a plane? And they're like, no, but I played Microsoft flight simulator a lot. <laughs> and, and, I think we're going to get to a point in VR where there really are going to be people who are like, you know, I've spent this much time in this, in this flight simulator VR application and I I'm totally comfortable flying a plane and they can go and do it. And it'll be because I mean, that's the same kind of thing. Military jet fighters have been using the train. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, so I think that we're definitely going to have a lot of people who are able to transparently take their virtual experiences and, bring it into real life applications and real life uses than we could ever have with, with monitor based interaction. Mm -hmm. And, um, on the other hand, if you're, if you're kind of, I mean, there's, there's always going to be aspects of it that are a little bit off because we're not fully replicating all of the, all of the tactile aspects, all of the, um, all the environmental aspects. And so, so I'm not sure if those little differences are going to kind of, um, train people to do slightly wrong things and end up kind of reacting incorrectly in real situations. Mm -hmm. And, um, that, that could certainly be problematic. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds, I, 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 that sound, I didn't even see it uh, from that angle. And I, and I think, I, I think it makes a, a total sense. I got to tell you though, if I were in the situation where a pilot, my, the, I was on a plane and the, you know, flying somewhere, a commercial plane, and the pilot passed out, and or the co-pilot passed out or something, and, and and someone came up, came up to the cockpit and said, cockpit and said to everyone, hey, don't worry, everybody, I've done this in VR, everything's gonna be fine. I will shit myself. I will still shit myself. It's better than it's better than having no pilot, that's for sure. But um, but but you're right. I mean, there's definitely some. Uh, um, some things that real life simulate, I mean, can simulate better than, than, than VR for now. And, it, mm -hmm. you know, even I, looking forward even more into the future, I think, uh, and I look into, I look into myself f for this, um, because I am, I, I'm useless in terms of survival. I, I, if you dump me in the middle of the forest, I'm going to die. I, I just I don't know how yes. to hunt. I, I feel about the same way, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to hunt. I'd be like hunting for my dinner. Everything would run away. I'm like, just hold still. Yeah. And, and then and then I'd probably pick up a mushroom. I'd be like, eh, what's the worst? And that could happen. I'd, <laughs> and I die. That that's the end of me. Sad, sad death. Um, but so but but here's the thing. Like I feel like VR could it simulate uh, scenarios that we could use just in case we ever needed them, right? So survival mm -hmm. you know in the forest in the desert absolutely how to change absolutely. a car tire i don't i i'm gonna tell you i am i don't know how to change a car tire um uh i i 
thankfully back when I had a car I, I drove it around and I never had to deal with that um it did stall once on 19th Avenue mm-hmm. and then I, I I got out of the car and I, I brought out this giant wrench and I just started smacking the shit out of it on the engine and then it worked so <laughs> did it work yeah wow. it did <laughs> oh man I'm such a caveman I don't know why I, uh, I said that but anyway um it, it, again that's what I'm trying to get at is it will we with our technology with the fact that we're becoming so disconnected with these everyday functions that people used to do like uh, you know uh, like like we're going to get to a point where 3d printers are going to become food replicators and we're probably going to forget how to cook like my children probably will forget how to cook and in in that case i think they they should have vr should be able to be cooking simulator how to Take a shower simulator. How to have proper sex simulator. Uh, will that be a sad state of affairs? Do you think we've gone too far by then? <laughs> I, I think, honestly, to the contrary. I think that when I, I think that when VR gives you the opportunity to to replicate experiences that are otherwise difficult to to have and to prepare for uh, future experiences mm-hmm. when you have no other way of preparing for them safely, um, it. it it really gives us, and it gives people the confidence to go into those situations. In fact, it's it's interesting. Um, uh, it's interesting that you bring up like social interaction because um, uh, I've read a theory. This is the most compelling theory that I've heard about why people dream. Hmm. And the theory is that one of the big reasons people dream is because um, so much of what makes humans able to survive is that they're able to form connections with other people and get them to help them out and work and work with each other. And if you can't do that successfully, you're um, not going to survive very well. And so dreams give you this, um, this kind of safe virtual environment where you have the opportunity to interact with other people and, and make mistakes and you're not going to pay the real life penalty for it. And so that's why, um, that's why they theorize, for example, that kids who first go to school for the first time um, experience a, a lot more time dreaming. And I think this has been measured. And likewise, a lot of dreams people commonly have are about embarrassing situations that would never, probably never happen in real life. But uh, for example, going to school and finding out you have no pants and that kind of thing. Um, they're kind of social situations where y- you, you're exploring, like, if this happened, if I was stuck in this this terrible social situation, how would I react? What would I do? And and would I be able to recover? And you kind of train yourself. And so I think that a lot of what VR is going to be able to to do is going to be a lot of the the same kind of thing where you can build that confidence to go into a new situation that you otherwise would be too terrified to ever enter or, or that you would screw up if you went into it without that, without that training and training can go so far beyond just industrial jobs. It can be all aspects of our lives. Yeah, I, you imagine if everybody, every dude, every every, I, well, because in the in this, I feel like in this society, it, it's uh, you know, it, it, there's this there's this emphasis on the guy to be like um, you know, the the uh, I don't know, the Casanova, the the charismatic, the full, the personable, the confident one the confident who's like and, yeah, walking yeah, up to people and, and just saying what he feels and all those things, and so like I, that would be. You know, that would be a killer app if you could create a VR uh, how to go on date simulator and you have this AI girl that uses Watson or Cleverbot, you know, on, on the back end and you're, and you're trying to 
Uh, oh, maybe not Cleverbot. Uh, some Cleverbot's reactions are a little bit, uh, would, on a date, would be a little bit strange. But, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, you did, the goal of the game is to take Clever um, Watson to bed um, somehow. But, but here's the thing. Another, that's a or funny... just to have a good date would be a great start. Yeah. See that. See, I, I'm a dog. I, I that I want to take you to bed. That's on it on the on the date. So I, I yeah. Um. Now you know my intentions and my agenda. Here's the thing, though. Uh, you talked about dreaming, and mm-hmm. I want to know what you know. What your thought? What your think? What you think about daydreaming? Because I feel like um, it's something that we don't that we don't realize about the smartphone era. The, this this age that we're sort of in, right? This is that we. I don't think. I don't. I don't think people have the time to daydream anymore, or 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 the or, or I don't think they have the time to daydream or the time to be bored. Um, and I think those are useful things, uh, useful useful processes that happen um, that 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 we have naturally. And and something that shaped me growing up, um, and I don't know if I've ever shared this with with with, with anybody on the podcast, but. But when I was in second grade, um, I, I first came to the U.S. To, San, to live in San Francisco when I was like in second grade, and um, and and I didn't know how to speak English, and uh, and that sucked because it, all the kids either spoke Cantonese or English, um, because it was yeah it was a school with a lot of Cantonese kids, which was cool. Um, but the, my but speaking of dreaming, like instead of using dreaming to like uh, have social to to simulate future social interactions i spent my days daydreaming um about the power rangers and i have my imaginary friends the power rangers and um we'd be hanging out in the corner of the yard and i'd be seeing them fight like the, all i would do through for like the 45 minute recess i would just you know go in a corner and watch the my imaginary power ranger friends fight uh rita and the evil Lord Zed. Um, so, 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 in, in in that sense, what I'm trying to say is like, could this ability, could could this ability to dream, um, be brought back to humans, um, because of the smartphone era? Like, like you see it, right? You see it on board. You see it. You see it everywhere. Everybody's on their smartphone, and and I I catch myself constant constantly trying to like stop and just tell myself, Chris, be bored, <laughs> so, you know, because things happen when you're bored, you know, and my best, most creative thoughts happen, most of them happen when I'm in the shower, and it's because I don't have my smartphone with me, um, so again, where, where I'm trying to get at is, like, um, how do we solve that, <laughs> and, you, you know, and, and, and uh, is dreaming also double-edged sword where people can escape into their dreams like I did? So uh, I think there's there's kind of multiple angles on this. Mm-hmm. So one of them is how much I'm I'm not entirely sure how much I buy into the idea that um that like constantly being distracted by the eternal flow of information is is uh, a bad thing um because I feel like it's it's not as true as we feel like it is. I think there are a lot of occasions on which someone will, for example, look at something on the internet, read something on the internet, and while they read it, while they look at it, and they're they're 
they're visualizing, they're thinking about this thing, they're thinking about how it relates to their experience. And they might even, you know, pause and look off at the window and think, you know, that, that dog reminds me of this other dog I saw the other day. And, oh, that old lady had it. And she was a friend of mine a while ago. And they'll, you know, this, this happens all the time. And, and then people ask them, what'd you do? They are like, oh, I was just surfing the net. Hmm. And, you know, you, you, there are a lot of times when you, you, you are taking a break and it's kind of, it's distributed a different way, but I think it still happens. Mm. Um, and, um, regarding, regarding the other parts, um, I definitely feel like, uh, giving access, uh, to, to creation in the VR space is going to enable people to realize, uh, daydreams and imagination, Mm. um, with a speed and scale that they never have before. And that's, um, and, and, you know, it, it might, and I, I guess that I, I feel like that's pretty exciting, honestly, because like a lot of, a lot of, because when you, when you visualized your, your Power Rangers fighting, they were, it was engaging for you and you were creating an engaging story for yourself. But mm-hmm. if you had the opportunity to, to uh, make that scene come to life and to put it on a video and share it with the world. I think there are a lot more people who would have got, who could potentially have gotten enjoyment out of it. And, and even more, if they could be in that space with you walking around them while they're fighting. And I I think that's something that, that VR could potentially offer is just the ability to kind of bring our daydreams to life and to, and to make them have value for other people and, and have value for society. Um, and what was the other part of your question? Um, yeah, daydreaming. Uh, could dreaming be used to? Well, I think we're gonna move on because I can't remember. The That's other fine. Part of That's question. fine. Um, and where I wanted to move on to was, did you play video games growing up? Yes, what? I had. And then yes, I had. Uh, I had an Atari Twenty Six Hundred. I had. Um, I didn't have a Game Boy, weirdly, but um, I had SNES. I had N64. I had just a bunch of consoles, and I was really, I was really in love with them, and spent a lot of time with them. Nice. Well, can you name your the five games that stand out the most from your childhood? Oh, that's interesting. Um, so my first would still have to be almost certainly Final Fantasy VI. I've played that game. That's one of the few games I've played a bunch of times, and I just love all the work that went into it all of the the music and the settings and the characters and the story and and i mean the, the mechanics are nothing particularly special but i always was really engaged in with with that game mm-hmm. um and what else um let me see um the the zelda series in general was really uh really great um Link to the Past is still my favorite Zelda game and nice. one of the ones I played as a kid. So that's definitely up there, probably number two. Um, I played it, I think, I, I actually played, like, anytime I played, I, I played, did a video on an SNES emulator for VR on my channel, and I played that game on that. Um, how, by the way, how, how did it feel like when you were playing, when you were reliving this game in, 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 in VR? Like, what was it, did, did, did it feel better, or was, you know, how did, I mean... What was your your impressions? Um, I mean, it's it was just on a virtual screen in VR, mm-hmm. but and and it wasn't really like a retro environment in that case. Yeah. Um, when I um, so I, like 
they've done some new things like the retro arcade where they're trying to put you in the same environment in which people originally played the games. I think that can create a lot more nostalgia feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, just kind of, um, I think if I were, if I were playing Link to the Past in a virtual environment that was like the one I played it in, then that would certainly be a lot more evocative of those nostalgic feelings I had when I originally played it. As it was, it was just kind of like, oh, this is a nice big screen to play this right. game on. And it, and it, it works out pretty well having the um, playing low res games in VR because they um, because the pixel density is still uh, at that time on DK one especially was relative was very low and th- that didn't hurt the the playability of these older games at all whereas newer ones it certainly did. Yeah, and before you move on to your next games, I saw you by speaking of Zelda and, and, and Let's Plays, I saw you play uh, Dolphin VR Legend of Zelda Wind Waker. Uh-huh. And, Im- and immediately, I, like I went out and tried to download it, and my and my my machine is just not. No, uh, honestly, I think I'm probably the only one who can play that. Yeah, um, I was so jealous. It's, it's very brutal. It? Yeah. It, it has a ton of resource usage of every kind of resource, um, and even then, I was locked at 30 FPS and getting judder 100 percent of the time. So, um, it's I still enjoy it, but I don't think um, I don't think they've quite gotten to a point yet where um, where where emulated uh, relatively recent games are able to run smoothly in VR. Why is that? Is that because of a prop- proprietary software on Nintendo's end? Or, I mean, what is, why, why are there... Why so the, the limitations... There's a bunch of limitations. First yeah. of all, the games were designed for a fixed frame rate. Usually, um, it depends on the game. The games that run at 60 FPS actually look a lot better. Mm. Um, this particular game, Wind Waker, was designed to run at 30 FPS, probably so they could fit in more detail in the environment or whatever. Um, so, and, and getting it to run at 60 FPS um, requires the use of asynchronous time warp, which uh, nobody has been able to do on PC yet because it requires cooperation from the uh uh, from your video card manufacturer. Um, so eventually I think it's going to be improve a lot along that front. Um, but there's still other problems. Those games weren't designed for a wide field of view. You have pop in along the edges of your vision. Um, and they have a very heavy CPU burden to be emulating the original machine in, in real time. And that CPU it's competing with the CPU burden to do positional tracking, which is essential to do in a timely manner. So all those things add up to a pretty, difficult experience nice okay so moving on to your next three games okay metroid the original metroid i played that a lot and i loved exploring that world it was a great game um i've played other game in the series but i think the original just still i still love it the most because it's um it's a game where there's a lot of environments that look very similar but have subtle differences to them and and there was a lot of discovery um Number four, let me think about it. Um, I, I don't want to, um, this is going to be totally cliched, but I'm going to say Ocarina of Time. Um, Ocarina of Time, because just kind of the first moments for me with that game were magical, like taking, taking a series and iconic characters that I was so familiar with and being able to, this was one of the very first 3D games I played. Being able to see them come to life in a 3D environment was just taking everything to a whole new level. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are going to have that same experience with VR, seeing uh, familiar franchises come into the VR space and be fully realized effectively in VR. What's your most um, memorable scene about Ocarina of Time, by the way, before you go move to number five? 
Say that again. What's your what was the most memorable scene or you know part of Ocarina of Time? Honestly, for me, it it was literally just like the first the first few seconds of the game where you're in Link's treehouse and he gets out of bed and you know you finish the cutscene and then I could hit the thumbstick on my controller and Link was walking around in 3D and I'm like I'm controlling Link in 3D this has never happened before I can walk him around in this world and and then to walk outside and the camera's rotating all around him and you can walk him anywhere in the forest and that was just really exciting for me Let's see. Fifth game. One more game. Hmm. Okay, here's an obscure one. This is um, a PC game, not a console game. Um, it's a game called uh, Robot Odyssey. Hmm. You may not have heard of it. It was a game from the Learning Company. Um, it was a game designed to teach digital logic circuit design. Um, and the way it did this is you had robots um, that you had three robot friends and you had to wire up digital logic circuits inside the robots, connecting their thrusters and their bumpers and using logic gates. And then you would throw them into puzzles and they would solve the puzzles for you. Um, but you had to make sure you got the circuits right or else um, they wouldn't solve the puzzles properly. So it was um, it's still one of my absolute favorite examples of really effectively using entertainment as a, as a vehicle for education. And even though it was like, it was like 320, 200, four colors. Uh, but, um, but I, I, I really loved that game. And um, I spent a lot of time just like um, playing around with it and reverse engineering bits of it to see how it worked. And I, I'd love to see um, educational experiences like that as well on, in, in VR platforms where you're combining um, entertainment and, and, and making making exploring a, a field of knowledge very interesting. Let me take the devil's advocate's position really quick, and that sounds really awesome. Um, does gamification of a, of of a learning experience take away from the learning? And so that depends very much what you mean by gamification. Um, I think that there's been uh, there's been a tendency to do really bad gamification of education, in which they'll like. Um, they'll like take like you're going to learn history and if you get these five questions correct you get a badge and then you can show off your badge to your facebook friends and that's that's just stupid um you, you don't want to just slap on points and badges and then assume that they're going to magically motivate people because they like to make numbers go up um you, you what you really want to do is you want to try and try and take kind of real world situations where you would apply this knowledge and abstract and simplify them into a game like settings so that you're so that the aspects of the entertainment that are actually engaging them are exactly the same things that engage the practitioners who develop these methods in order to solve problems. Mm -hmm. You want them to feel good because they're solving a problem that is abstract an abstraction or an analogy for a real problem. Yeah. Well said. And yeah, that was just a random question that I, I, I wanted to see what you, your thoughts were. Um, if you Another random question. If you could be any video mm -hmm. game character from your childhood, who would it be? Any character from my childhood? Um, hmm. I think... I think I'm going to say um, from Final Fantasy VI, Terra, cool. the Esper girl. Why? 
because um, I like her personality and I like that she can turn into an Esper and fly, which is really useful. Do you, I mean, is that, is that like a, a super ability that you also wish you had regardless of being a video game character, like the ability to just fly? That would be terribly handy to be able to fly long distances very, very quickly. Although teleportation is obviously cooler. Yeah. Ah, teleportation is cooler, but there's something to flying, man. Except, except then I think about it, it gets kind of cold up there. And I am, uh, I'm a total, uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, yeah. and there's this move. I mean, the, the benefit of flying is you can, you can like fly up and get a good vantage point and kind of adjust your position and you can like catch somebody and you can like go swerve through the buildings and look at different things. And so you can kind of have an experience whereas teleporting is just like, eh, I'm there. Yeah. No, I was, I was going to say, like, I'm a total testicle when it comes to cold weather. And, you know, te cold <laughs> testicles are pretty sensitive things. And so, yeah, I, I would, um, yeah, I, I was just in South Korea, like, a, a couple weeks ago. And, you know, it's, for, for people on the East Coast of the U.S., it's not that, I don't think it would be that cold. But um, we here in the Bay are kind of spoiled by the super drought. Yeah, um, we're kind of like... Like, people show me snow on Facebook. I'm like, what's that? Yeah. Um, and this 30-degree weather, like, I was, dude, oh, I mean, uh, the, uh, this thing was, this, I, my, I, I was just too cold. It was too cold. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think if you lived in another place, you would, you would have to get used to it. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, let's move on to GDC. And I'd like to uh -huh. get your, because this week has uh you know has just passed and i'd like to get you know what do you what are your takeaways from this week uh, from gdc and the news from gdc i presume you mean mm -hmm. um so i'm i'm first of all i'm i'm very optimistic about it um i think lighthouse was exactly what we need exactly when we needed it um we were we were looking at a launch of major honestly if lighthouse hadn't showed up when it did i think we would be looking at a launch of the first generation of HMDs without any input device that was any better than a gamepad. Um, because like stuff like STEM, it's going to be out in time, but mass like mass adoption by game developers is just not going to happen. And you, you can't count on people having it. Um, whereas with, with Lighthouse, uh, I, I think that we're, we're, when, when the vibe comes out, we're going to see, um, I, I think we're, we're going to see every single everything single thing that's developed for vive taking advantage of that technology and that's going to open up a, a big a big space of experiences that was just not accessible before and i think that's really exciting mm -hmm. um and um I'm, I'm excited that the vive exists and that's being backed by by valve and by htc htc is not a name people have been talking about a lot but they they're they're a big player in the space and it's very cool that they're getting into it um and I'm, I'm very happy that Morpheus, like there was before GDC, Morpheus was, you know, it was good. And it was, I think, on par with DK2. But Sony had not made any promises that it was ever going to release it. Mm -hmm. And there was a very, there was a very not, un, there was a realistic chance that they were just going to say, you know, this is, this is cool, but we want to focus on other things. So we're just going to kill the project. Mm -hmm. And now I think they're they're really they've really committed to it. They've really committed to the prop, not just propping up the specs, but they're they're I, I think they're starting to talk about release. They're talking about 
make putting all the pieces together to turn this into a real consumer product. And I'm, I'm very optimistic about that. So I think whereas before we had like one kind of major player who might not be in it and one major player, now we have three solid major players in the market. And that's kind of, I, I think that's kind of the bare minimum you need for a, a great competitive market. And so I, I think this is, and you know, there was a, there was a thread on Reddit that basically said, Palmer, you did it. And I, that that's how I feel about it too. I feel like before this, it was like VR, is it going to be a thing? Don't really know. Whereas now it's like, we've, we've got that big commitment from three big players. We've got open competition. That's going to, that's going to fight and bring out some great products. And that's going to do some solid marketing and, mm-hmm. and bring this to a huge audience. And, and so I, I feel much, much more confident now that VR is going to be, is, is going to be here to stay. I agree. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I am feel very confident that I will not be living in a cardboard box next year, um, just because this this market will be uh, exploding, and it's it's kind of crazy. I mean, you're just seeing the advances and and Lighthouse. To be frank, I did not I did not see it coming at all. Um, and just reading, I didn't on, either. Yeah, just reading some of the specs on it, and you know, one of the things where like um, I think Alan Yates Yates uh, uh-huh. on Twitter, he was talking about how uh, you can stack one on top of the other in terms of uh, in terms of um, so and you use can it have to more... expand the space and make yeah. it as big as you like. Yeah, which is awesome, really awesome. I really dig that. Um, and so and so, I'm I'm really looking forward. I I think the big elephants in the room in terms of Lighthouse and Vive or Vive are are, are price, obviously. And um, I think it's Vive because that's what the the HTC guy said when I, he visited me at the mixer. But I, have I don't know if they're consistent about it either. So. I have a theory on their name on their on their name. I actually I actually do think it's Vive. Um, because it, it was a uh, this thing called RE5, um, uh-huh. so I think they're playing on re- oh revive word, revive they're trying it. to revive VR, um, which is that's clever it that's is clever, clever. <laughs> um, so so yeah this is uh, I, I agree I mean this is this thing is um, all aboard the hype train and it's not yeah. a I don't think it's a hype train it's I think it's a real train it's actually a real train. Um, <laughs> not even not even a fake train um yeah i think i mean we're getting to the point now where like say you were a major like like you were a major game producer a major film producer and you were you were wanting to get into vr you were like vr is so exciting and this is so cool technology but i don't know if it's going to be in the hands of you know millions of consumers in in five years And I think that those people are starting to gonna quickly start coming around at this point and saying, you know, I I want to get into this, and I believe now that that market is going to be there, and I can invest in it, and I can I can feel safe taking taking that leap now. Definitely, you know, and that's we, going to produce so much content that we that we really need to make this take off. I agree for sure, a hundred percent. You know, you said something earlier about how um, Sony. Um, Sony decided that yeah, this is going to be a thing. We, we're going to push this forward. You know, ha- you, you know, in in speaking of the context of the console market and, and uh, video video game consoles, I mean, mm-hmm. if Sony did not explore VR, let's say in a in a parallel universe where they're like, yeah, I don't think we're going to pursue this. Um, what other technology could consoles innovate on to continue pushing the envelope in this console generation? What else besides VR could could keep gamers and people 
interested and content with with the current generation of console hardware. Um, so yeah, what do you think? I think I think VR is obviously very exciting, a big step forward. But I think it's giving a little bit too much credit to describe it as the only thing that could move consoles forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a lot of other things they could do. Real-time ray tracing, if they got that working efficiently and effectively, could be one of those in terms of video quality and being able to render a variety of new things mm-hmm. in real time. Um, another one would just be pushing up resolution and, and frame rates. If just the same experience, if they could get it running at, at 4K resolution, that 90 hertz 120 hertz would be much more more pleasant to play um and also just improving um and it innovating on genres innovating on gameplay mechanics innovating on um using new styles of art assets and and new ways of building building worlds and building levels um and also just um also on the, the side of AI, there's obviously a lot of room for improvement for making agents in a game that feel authentically like you're interacting with, with other people. For sure. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and so, um, are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so in a, I, I agree, but I also have this, I mean, my, my thing is like, yeah, I think I am probably giving a VR way too much credit, but, um, but you know all those things that you mentioned, ray tracing and and you know just better re- resolution and you know, higher frame rate and all those things are awesome and I think that they're they they sh- we should have them. But but the paradigm of interaction with the with the with the consoles um, is where I'm sort of stuck at. Like I, I it's the same it's the same sort of thing where it's a box with a controller with a TV in front of your face uh, in front of you, um, not your face, and, and so. I mean, is that is that sort of like uh, innovators' dilemma sort of question where you know it, it works? Let's not try to fix it. Um, or or do you think that gamers will want more? Um, especially, I, I want I really want to know what because um, Sony PlayStation Four has sold twenty million PlayStation Fours by now, and I'm I'm really interested interested in seeing the numbers of how many. Morpheus will sell uh, come their first year. You know, what do you have any? What do you think? What, let's let's speculate a little bit. What do you think is going to be um, the, the that's sales a, figures? That's a good question. Honestly, honestly, I think if they have a good launch title or two for Morpheus and it and it gets a lot of good marketing and people really buy into it, I think we're we're I think we're going to realistically see uptake of a majority of PS4 owners. So at least 5 million people. And I, I don't think that's too much of a stretch. Yeah, that's uh I think that's a good number. Um and and I think it's uh and and I wonder like, you know, will this where is Microsoft uh, with Xbox and, and Nintendo in, in all of this? Do you think that, and I, I think this is a question that I ask over and over and over again, but, um, but I'm really curious, curious to know, like, where, where are the, where are these players in terms of VR? Do you think that, um, maybe not this console generation, but maybe the next one they might show up or are they already working on something? What do you think? Uh, that's, that's hard for me to predict. I, I think, I think Nintendo just has a 
company culture where they they get very wedded to the solution they've traditionally used and it takes a lot of pushing and shoving to get them to really buy into experimenting with something new and i mean they experimented with vr in the 90s and they were already burnt by it and so they're they're going to really struggle to 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 persuade their executives that well, we really need to experiment with this again um and so I, I think we're going to see something like what we saw with online play with Nintendo, that mm-hmm. it was something that they did eventually buy into in, in a big, pretty big way. But in for, for several years, there were PCs with online play, Xboxes with online play, yeah. Playstations with online play, and no Nintendos with online play. And, and, and it was constantly cited as a limitation. And, you know, they, they, they just had to be convinced by everybody else's success that that was what they needed to do. And, I, I'm hoping that what we're actually going to see is that is that we're going to see the PC be successful uh, with VR. We're going to see um, the PS4 be successful with VR, and then Nintendo and Microsoft are going to quickly panic, quickly get to work, and they'll um and and the very next console generation is going to be completely VR enabled and VR ready. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, what do you think is going to happen this E3? I mean, if you're if you're Valve, if you're if you're if you're Sony, uh, if you're Oculus, I mean, what do you, what are your what are your next moves for this coming up E3? Okay, um, so first of all, Oculus, if they're releasing this year, there's a release date at E3. There's no way around that. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're going to just announce it like in September, in the middle of nothing. Um, I, I might be wrong about that, but I, I really think it's not unrealistic to be seeing a release date at E3. Um, and I I think Oculus is... I, I don't know this for sure, but I feel like Oculus is probably going to be putting forward some kind of input solution at E3 because for them to... I mean, for them to be competitive right now, they, they need an input solution. They can't just ship with a gamepad and Vive ships with Lighthouse, and then and then they say, well, a gamepad is fine. You don't really need Lighthouse. That That's ridiculous. Um, so, so, I mean, Oculus might decide to go a different way, but they're going to have to do some kind of motion controls. I don't see how they cannot. Hmm. Um, they might do something more, seat, more suitable for a seated experience, but other than that... Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, as for um, as for Vive, um, I think Vive is going to move forward more on the software side. I think I mean they're go- they're going to the hardware is going to become more wireless and become more um, more compact and more consumer ready, um, and that'll be all totally boring. And mm-hmm. I, I think on the software side is where it's going to be really exciting. I think we're still going to start to see some first party valve titles maybe being announced at E3. That would be very exciting to see. Yes. I don't know what they'll be. Probably not Half-Life 3. Probably. Um, I, I, you know, every, based on the, all the reviews and things that people saw, there was a, a, a portal demo and stuff. If I, I hope, I really hope they're not teasing people with that. Does <laughs> that be valve? You sons of bitches. Um, but, but yeah, you're right. I, I probably not Half-Life 3. Probably not Half-Life 3, but, it would. I don't. I'm not sure if a portal game would make sense or work in, um, in a in VR room. Mm. But uh, so, but but I'm sure that honestly, I think the most likely thing is they're coming out with um, that they're not using existing franchise and they're building. Uh, they're they're kind of starting a new franchise yeah. in a in a setting that's made for VR, mm-hmm. and 
everyone's going to be like, what is this? I've never heard of this. And I think they'll warm up to it in time. Yeah. Um, and as for, um, as for Sony, that's a good question. I mean, they've got to have their own first-party titles that they're developing, or at least major third-party titles from major developers. Yeah. And I, I don't know what those are. They're going to have to announce those at some point. Um, but I think Morpheus, they said it's coming 2016, was it? Spring 2016? Do you remember? Yeah, well, uh, February 2016. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, if they're shipping on that time scale, you know the, 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 big, the big launch titles are in development. So they're going to have to announce those at some point. And I think E3 is a logical place to do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming we're going to see Sony announcements there. Yeah, I hope so too. First, first party titles, I think, will be pivotal for them. And correction, I think it is it's quarter two, uh, February, uh, 2016, not February. Um, but yeah, uh-huh. okay, because I, I, I think it'd be awesome. You know, you know what franchise or IP would be really cool um, in VR. Um, and I and I think there's this thing where I um, I come to the realization that tabletop games or board style sort of perspective games are uh, are really effective. Um, and so something like uh, God of War, where where you have mini Kratos just uh, rampaging, ra- rampaging and going wild. Um, Are you thinking like Lucky's Tale kind of style? Yeah, but with Kratos and blood. <laughs> that that definitely I, sounds like it could be fun. Yeah, um, play, yeah just play. being able to get in that in that environment and still have a character that you can watch, um, yeah. and and but still be feel like you're in, engulfed by that environment and, and enjoying it from your own perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be pretty sweet. Because um, Lucky Tale is pretty good. I mean, did you try Lucky Tale? I did for the first time, actually, yesterday. Yeah, how, how was it? What were your impressions? Um, I I really like Lucky Tale. Um, like I was, I had a lot of fears about how it would be. That turned out to be unsubstantiated. I was afraid that I would be like looking at a level, and behind me would be a giant gaping empty space with nothing interesting going on. Mm-hmm. It's not really like that. It's more like you're you're floating, looking down at Lucky, and he's like a couple feet in front of you and then behind you like is the rest of the environment and you're kind of there's there's like mountains or or hills around the whole environment so you're you're always surrounded by the environment wherever you go yeah. they did a really good job with that um they did a good job um a lot of people have mentioned lucky reacting to you um and they did a pretty good job with that you can actually lean in really close to him if you want to you can get right up in his face yeah. um the, the distances seem to be just perfect for that um and and just the the fidelity is like like just as as good as I would see in any Nintendo quality title mm-hmm. um, from the platformer genre. So I'm I'm very very happy with it and where it's going. And um and and they've they've talked about a lot of the problems they've solved with the the camera navigation and level design to enable smooth motion that doesn't get people sick. And I'm I'm pretty confident that they're a good developer that knows what they're doing. Yeah, I'm excited for Lucky Style. I really enjoyed it too. Uh, their level design and I think their art style is is something I really dig. It's something that I can um, that I can spend a lot of time in. Just just being in there, like just taking in the. The, oh yeah, there's so much to see just yeah. looking around that, that environment. It's colorful, it's engaging, and it's really pretty. Yeah, I agree. Um, so that's exciting for sure. Yeah, E3 this year is going to be wild. Um, any, 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 any wild speculative predictions that might happen this year? Uh, um, do you think we'll see anything from Apple? Do you think we'll see anything from uh, who's what's a company that hasn't said? What's a big company that hasn't said anything? By now, um, um, Google. Google. They have that partnership with Mattel. Um, 
And remind me what they're doing. You know, Mattel, the uh, the, the the old um, that you know the Viewmaster thingy that you yeah have, yeah. So they they're rebooting that for VR, and it's gonna be like a cheaper. Oh. It's like a cheap Android viewer, I think. Um, Google cardboard viewer. <laughs> I mean, I think I think one thing I'd love to see is just for like right now, a lot of Google stuff like cardboard has been kind of uh, relatively small teams doing something kind of off to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'd really love to see Google buying into VR in a big way mm-hmm. and doing some some major innovation, doing some big projects with lots of people on them, maybe doing maybe not building their own HMD, but at least um like bringing a lot of their major services into the VR space, having uh, VR having official support for um, Google Street View in VR, mm-hmm. uh, for for Google Earth, um, and and being able to like have that big VR globe that you can zoom in on and explore. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I really want to see I want to see them put put some big money into VR, and I think we're going to see that eventually. I don't know if that'll happen this year, but that would be a great thing to see. I really hope they um, do. But 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 here's the thing. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I I wonder if if to them Magic Leap is their answer to VR because you people I, I've seen um, I've heard interview the uh, Kent By of Voices VR. He did shout out. He did a uh, a podcast with um, I think the technical director at Magic Leap, and and when he tried like when he asked the dude like well, what is Magic Leap? What do you where what category are you in? Are you a VR? Are you AR? What are you? And so the guy was sort of, I mean, I, in, in my mind, I feel like he sort of dodged the question. Um, he he dodges, wanna... they dodge all their questions ever. Yes, they... Like, I feel like literally 100% of things about Magic Leap are trade secrets. Yeah. Which makes it very hard to evaluate them. Which makes no sense why you would do an AMA on Reddit. Like, if you're just going to be not giving anything, any, any like, substance. I mean, obviously they're doing something worthwhile if Google gave them many millions of dollars, but I... I don't know what it is. I really don't. Yeah. I don't know if they're doing something that's a long shot, but might be interesting down the line. I don't know if they're doing something that's that's kind of a speculative research. I don't know if they're doing something that's like some new VRHMD or some new uh, way of doing some kind of crazy light field movie thing. I don't, or if they're doing a documentary. I have no idea. Yeah, I have no, no idea what they're doing. But here's the thing. Here's the, here's the takeaway I took from the AMA is um, the, the, the CEO was doing AMA and he was like, um, someone asked him about HMDs and stere- you know, stereoscopic you know, it, it, like vision coming from Yeah, HMD. I saw that. And he was like, yeah. This, the, the, the lie about making people sick. Yeah, how it can make people sick and how it can have detrimental impacts on the human brain or something like that. What What do you think? Obviously, that's ridiculous. Like, that's all. There's already been an article out by University of Washington professor, of, or sorry, it was a UC Berkeley optical uh, optics professor, basically saying, "Yeah, it, there's no way it can do that. In fact, uh, VRHMDs are rather likely to improve your optical health with uh, extended use, rather than be detrimental to it." And I, like, I mean, there might be long-term mental effects with certain kinds of experiences that could be potentially risky in ways we don't understand yet and you know i'm, I'm not going to say vr is 100 percent harmless at all times um but I, I i think it's certainly jump i don't think he has any inside data on the harmful effects of vr that that we don't yeah it's just kind of it's just kind of lame that you would jab throw a jab at a in, a in an industry that is um you know out of nowhere <laughs> like yeah 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like there's as even as much money as they received, like there's there's they're not going to succeed without the rest of the VR industry. They're they're not that magical. Hmm. Um, so whatever they put out, they're going to have to be making deals and cooperating and and building on the platforms of all these other all these other VR companies. And yeah. I would I would hope they would be a little bit more friendly with them with them. That. Uh, you know, maybe it was just a one-time kind of saying the wrong thing. I'm not going to diss him for that forever. Yeah. Yeah, we're, I'm going to, yeah. Magic Leap, if you're listening, come on my podcast. I highly doubt you are, you are, but if you if you are, come along. I will ask you about that. Um, I want to ask you something a bit more, uh, more futuristic, like just bringing things to a close. Will there be such a thing as the metaverse? Will that, will, will that be something that you and I will see in our lifetimes? So I I do think that VR social is going to be a thing um, in the sense of I, I think people are going to create virtual rooms that they co-inhabit with their friends and their family and their business partners that, that they'll use for meetings and for talking and for hanging out. I think those will 100% definitely exist. Um, the, question, the, the question about the metaverse, though, is really whether people are going to be craving a common space, whether they're going to be creating a world that connects other virtual experiences that mm. they can move through together with other people. And, um, and I, I think you can, honestly, I think you can question to some extent whether that's something people want. It might just be that people want to navigate experiences by selecting them from, from their launch menu. And then each experience is completely isolated. And that certainly has the technical advantages that you don't have to have them all integrated into a common application and, and deal with them, them occupying that common space. And um, so I, I think, I think the metaverse, I, I think that VR social is going to happen. The metaverse, um, if it happens, is going to have to happen not just because it's cool to have a, a virtual world encompassing all virtual worlds. It's, it's going to have to have some kind of use case that makes sense and makes that a better way of interacting. And it might just be a matter of people are used to navigating between things the way they navigate between places in the real world. Um, but but I'm, I'm not 100% sure they're going to want to use that natural metaphor or whether they're going to prefer something um, more abstract. You, the, I, I feel enlightened by your, the points you bring up. Um, and I, th and I think I want to philosophize with you a lot more when it comes to the metaverse, because I think you're coming out of a place of a lot of thought. Um, and I'd like that. So, so thank you. I want to talk to you more about the metaverse. Um, I'm glad that you thought that was interesting. That was very interesting to me. Yeah. I just, yes, because that there's certain assumptions in my mind that you've, that you're sort of, hmm. Cool. Thank you. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, moving on. So metaverse. Well, we'll um, you're coming back. Uh, and uh, please, I hope you do. <laughs> um, uh, so, so uh, moving on to the question of identity and, mm -hmm. you know, wh what do you think is going to be the, um, long-term, long-term implications on our idea of identity uh, as this technology progresses, I mean, we'll, we'll, ten years from now, when this is everywhere, hopefully, um, and you know, and and we've gone through the thousands, maybe, yeah, we'll probably go through thousands of experiences from here to like, you know, here in, in ten years. Whew, 
you know, how will, mm-hmm. how do you think that will change who we are, how how who we how we see ourselves? Um, you know, like yeah, what are your thoughts? So, um, there's a lot of interesting things about identity in VR. Um, um, I actually, I, I recently saw a talk by um, Philip Rosedale, and, uh, who is uh, one of the founders of um, Linden Labs at Second Life. And identity has been a, a big part of uh, what, what's influenced the structure of Second Life and, and how people interact with it. Um, and he, he told some stories about, so, so one interesting statement that he made um, about identity was he feels like the the avatars people use to represent themselves in in virtual spaces are actually closer to the people they really are than than their real life bodies because they have that flexibility to choose what they want how they want to self express and and with a very very low transactional cost that that's just not available in the real world and so um, and and I think that's really powerful because it lets you um, it lets you put your it lets you create that um, create create an identity and put it out in a social space and then have people react to it and so you you begin to develop comfort with that identity in a way that in the real world might have never been feasible. So I think what we're going to see is um, more and more people who develop identities that in the real world without VR, they might have never developed because now they have this opportunity to say, I'm just going to try this thing. I'm going to use this use this avatar and this representation, put myself in this space, see how it feels, see how people react, see how I like it. And and I, I think it, we'll see a lot more people gravitating to representations and self-expression that that they, they never could have done before. Um, and, um, and obviously there's... Um, there's uh, a lot of um, there's a there's a lot of self-expression that's possible in VR that was just that's literally completely impossible in the real world. Being able to assume um, forms that are very different in scale, very different in shape, um, and like based on animals and things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there are, there are a lot of people now in the real world who feel like they can't achieve the identity that that they want at all and it's just completely inaccessible to them with modern technology and VR is going to be very important for them to feel um, to, to be able to even ever achieve a sense of um, a, a sense of closeness with what they feel is their real selves and to be able to inhabit what they feel is their true body. I think that's really important. Um, and um, and of course, there's other aspects to identity besides just the the, um, the self-expression. There's also um, um, hmm. um, there's um, one interesting aspect of um, identity. I think is, and this was actually touched on by uh, Ready Player One, mm-hmm. is the the idea of um, um, of uh, passing. So. In, in a virtual space, you can employ you can you can employ avatars and representations to um, achieve to achieve a more um, not just to achieve a representation that's more like your true self, but also to situationally alter your representation to conform to what you expect, um, what you think people expect, or what you believe will achieve you the most gain in that situation, wow. and. Um, and so you can imagine, for example, that if, if someone in, in real life um, 
if, if someone in real life were um, a person who, uh, of a class that's very heavily discriminated against, and then in, in virtual reality, they might, if they're using virtual reality, for example, for um, for their virtual workplace, they might pre uh, prefer to assume an avatar that um, that doesn't have that doesn't face those same discriminatory barriers so that they can get that job and they can work in that workspace and, and feel like they're on the same level as other people, mm. um, which also faces some pretty, um, some pretty scary um, implications about the idea that we could see, we could see groups that are discriminated against getting erased in the virtual space because people don't want to, don't want to have to deal with the consequences of, of being a, a member of that group. Um, so they and because you have that flexibility, they can just opt out of it. Um, yeah. And on the other hand, there's um, it's just kind of and 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 it also it also just raises questions about like how there's there's going to be thing a lot more cases I think of infiltration where people who in a real life group or situation would be easily identified as not being a member of the group and not being welcome will be able to infiltrate it a lot more easily, which could lead to implications for spying, for uh, uh, for predation, things like that. Um, and um, and there's um, and more on the positive side, there's also the opportunity, I think, to have to have um, to have situational identity, um, and this is something people have online today. But it's in a much it's it's usually less about representation, avatar representation, and more about using different online accounts to represent different different facets of their lives and having these fragmented identities. And I think in the in the future in VR, we're going to have fragmented identities, but each identity will be associated with different avatars, and people will be able to actually relate to different groups of people using different representations and in whichever way is most comfortable for them interacting with that group. Mm -hmm. And that's something we do in real life too, to an extent, kind of putting on different masks or faces when we interact with different people. But this is obviously taking that to a whole new level. Yeah. You brought up some, whew, some, uh, some really heavy, some really deep, really interesting points that I, again, we, we might spend hours upon hours philosophizing and just working out. Um, but but just yeah and, and but just really quickly i think the 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 idea that people will um will will use their avatars to conform with the the larger group um is is fascinating or to me or the dominant and, group yeah the dominant group is 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 fascinating and really scary to me um and i remain i'm trying to I'm going to be as hopeful as possible when looking at this because I because I think that because everybody will have this um this new access to experience uh they will hopefully become more open minded to different people and different you know different just different humans I think um and so I'm crossing my fingers uh like the kumbaya hippy dippy um, crazy dude that I am that I that uh, hopefully VR and the metaverse and you know identity uh, will will be uh, that VR will be used as a tool to allow people to be more accepting of others identity and who they are you know, because... I'd, I'd like to think that but I mean like if you look at like the workplace today there are all kinds of cases in which bosses tell their employees 
like you have to cover up that tattoo you have to like not dye your hair or else you're fired and you know they could really take that to a whole new level in vr they could say you're going to choose one of these four avatars for your work and you're going to like it and they're essentially defining every aspect of your appearance now Mm -hmm. um at least in that context and that can be pretty scary yeah, unless you, well, yeah, it would be scary. Um, my hope is that the employers or the people in power will have access to experiences that, for example, I don't know if you saw, I, I can't remember who did this research. Oh, Seba, no, Seban, Sebastian Kuntz was talking to Ken Fai, Um and mm-hmm. uh, he was saying uh, how people who were white, and then they saw their hands in VR and their hands were that of a black person. Like they became more empathetic uh, to a person that they, they of a different skin color. And so I don't know how that would translate yeah. to other forms of identity, identity besides, you know, race and skin color. Um, I, I think I've seen actually, I believe, similar research regarding gender that um, when people are able to in, inhabit bodies of other genders for a time that they start to develop more empathy for the experience of others mm-hmm. and I've, I've i've certainly had that experience with fragmented identities online that uh when you when you present it with a particular um representation that you you tend to get social reactions that can be very different from what you're used to and that can give you some insight into the the, the experience of other groups of people here's an interesting thought experiment if i put a man in a, a man in a, in a in a in a room in a in a, in a woman in a room and I give the man uh, an experience uh, in an HMD where for 100 hours, he's going to inhabit the, the body of a woman. And for the, for the woman in the other room, she'll be for 100 hours and she'll inhabit the body of a man. And then we try to, rec- and re- and then we try to record their, you know, their, their biological processes. Do you think that over time the man will develop, will, the man's, the man, because his brain sees that, oh my, my God, I have boobs. Like, do you think that over time that per, that man will create more, will generate more estrogen, and then vice versa for the woman? Will the woman create more testosterone if if she, over time she realizes, oh, I, I I have a giant penis? I mean, what do you think? Is that is that crazy? Um, or I or... no one's ever done that experiment. I don't think that would happen. Um, okay. I I think that they will. I mean, first of all, because um, although we have very strong associations between anatomy and gender, a lot of gender is a lot of gender is social and uh, about how we engage with people and how we think about ourselves and our preferences. And I think that I think that a lot more of what they'll experience in those hundred hours is going to be the differences in how people treat them, the differences in how they think about their preferences and the things they're allowed to do. Um, as as opposed to um, as opposed to actual biological changes. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, the you have been a true scholar uh, and amazing human of virtual reality. I really enjoy talking to you. You um, you've taught me so much in the span of two hours, and I feel like I'm gonna have to go through this podcast a couple times just listening to like some of the technical aspects that you mentioned and the, all the really good points that you brought up. Um, dude. Uh, Dude, I say dude because I don't have a better word to say, uh, so I apologize. But you're amazing, and I really have to thank you for your time. I, 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 
yeah please come again i really i really yeah. liked you it was it was great talking to you you had a lot of interesting questions and yeah if you ever if you ever want to ask me about something just just randomly you can you can send me a message and i'll i'll do my best yes thank you um so how can people stay in touch and how can people follow what you're doing and, and support the amazing work that you're up to so um, I am I'm definitely going to update my channel again. I've taken a little bit of hiatus to work on my light field work, but um, it is going is going to be updated again. It is youtube.com slash everyday VR. That's E V R Y Day V R. And um, and you can also email me at uh, everydayvr at gmail.com. Again, E V R Y Day V R at gmail.com. Um, and anybody can send me mail there. Um, and and yeah, I'll just I'll I'll put out updates whenever I'm ready to to give the world an update on on my projects. And I'll definitely keep um I'll I'll try to do more tutorials, more technical videos, more uh, more more let's plays, and just just keep getting the word out about VR. Yeah, and the, and I I apologize we didn't get to dive deep into the light field work that you're doing, but I I, I hope you can come again and and we can go deeper and and explore the rabbit hole even even more. Yeah. That's yeah, fine. Yeah, we have plenty to talk about as it is. So, Sweet. yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it another time. Awesome. Thank you, Dee. Thank you.